Welcome to New Life Lutheran's podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated, and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nlutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe at Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric, or would like to suggest a topic for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at eric.anderson at nlutheran.com. Gospel according to St. Luke, the 24th chapter. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Well, good morning. I'm, uh, I'm Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are a guest, um, hi. I'm glad that you're here. Glad that you're joining us this morning. New Life is a great place. Um, we, my wife and I have been here for about eight months, and um, we moved down here from Madison, Wisconsin. We've loved it down here. Um, well, we've been going through a, a sermon series the last uh, three weeks or so, and it's called Proof. And um, the reason that Pastor Ben and I wanted to, to walk through some of these teachings is because um, something really strange happened on Easter. Um, and maybe you guys noticed it, maybe you didn't notice it. Um, but on, the, on Easter, we talk about how somebody who was dead came back to life. And I know that we hear this story over and over and over again in our lives every Easter, um, so maybe it, it becomes less strange to us over time, but that's bizarre, right? I mean, it's unbelievable. Dead people do not come back to life. And really the only time they come back to life is in uh, movies or books, right? That's the only time that we hear about this, um, about dead people coming back and walking um, and existing in the world. And so we wanted to examine these interactions um, with a dead man, that this person who was dead, Jesus, um, is now come back to life, and we wanted to spend time looking at all of these moments where he interacts with his disciples. We wanted to look at it and, and just examine what that can do for us in our world, um, and also what it did to the disciples in, in their world. And one of the main reasons why we wanted to talk about this is we live in a, in a culture and in a society that is highly uh, secularized, and actually proud, very proudly so. And, uh, and in fact... Our whole, over the past 400 years, the whole Western European American venture has been how much knowledge, how much science, how much evidence can we compile? And, uh, and oftentimes that's been set up against religion or faith. And so what's happened is, um, we have now this discussion in our culture that it's evidence or it's science versus 
faith. That's how we talk about um, religion. And, uh, it, and in fact, even the founding of our, of our country was based on this kind of idea because the founders were very specific. Although um, the United States, the laws were built around Christian morals, they were very intentional that it was not a Christian nation. There was a separation between church and state. And many of the founding fathers were not Christians. They were very intentional that this was a secular country. And that was very proud. They were very proud of that um, coming out of the monarchy and some of those things. So now in our culture, 250 years later, now we have faith versus evidence. And um, I grew up in a very secular community. It was a university town. I grew up, uh, I I went to public school and and it was a very liberal public school. I was involved in um, art and music and some of those things. So I grew up in a community and in a culture and I had a friend group that was very secular and not, not religious. And, uh, and I heard this a lot, this kind of faith versus evidence. And I spent a lot of time in my youth trying to marry those two things. I heard people in my church talking about them and what the people in my church were talking about did not make sense to what, you know, people in the culture were talking about. And so this idea of faith versus evidence, um, was a big deal in how people talked about that. And in fact, there are some people in my context, some of my friends and family who were actually proud that despite all the evidence to the contrary, they were going to have faith. And that almost made them like more pious than other people because they were, they were in spite of all the evidence, they were still going to believe, um, that there was a God and these things. And then I, I, as I've began to read the the new Testament and began to study and, and do these things, I realized that how the biblical authors talk about um, faith is way different than how we talk about faith. And we actually, um, I don't know if you guys know this, but we actually have a definition of faith in the Bible. It's given to us. So we're going to examine that um, right now. This is, what, uh, this is how the New Testament author um, this, of the sermon to the Hebrews defines faith. This is what faith is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And I put a little parenthesis here because the, the Greek word here in the original language, it could also mean evidence. It's a noun. It's the thing, the, the, what we set. Um, we have a conviction or we have evidence of things that we can't see. Now, does that sound like how our culture talks about faith today? Not at all, right? What assurance and evidence. That's how the New Testament author talks about faith, believing in God and believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. And so um, I actually have uh, a, a picture for you guys. Does anybody know what this is? Sat- yes, last night somebody knew what it was. Any guesses? A crocus. Yeah, it's a crocus flower, right? Um, I'm not a huge flower or garden person. My favorite flowers are fake ones that never die. Um, but when we were up in Wisconsin, you know, they get a lot more snow and it's cold for a lot longer, uh, colder for a lot longer up there. And in early to mid March, much like here, these crocus flowers would begin to pop up, but more often than not, there's still snow on the ground. So it looks like this. There's four to six inches of snow on the ground. And all of a sudden out of the snow pops this green and this purple. So the whole ground is covered with snow, and this is one of the first flowers that um, blooms in, in the spring. So beginning of March to mid-March, we start seeing these crocus flowers. 
start seeing this green and this purple come up. And uh, does any, what, what does the crocus flower tell us? Any guesses? It's not a rhetorical question. I really want to know. What, what, do we, what do we know because of the crocus flower? That spring's on the way, right? Yeah. That spring's on the way. And despite all this evidence that it is still winter, all the snow on the ground, the cold, freezing, frigid temperatures, there's evidence that underneath all this snow, and underneath all this cold, that there's life. And that spring is coming. That it's coming. We can't see it or feel it yet, but it's there. We have the evidence of it. And uh, this is what faith is. Faith is looking at our world, and despite all of the death and the destruction and the hate that we see, and the 20th century was the most violent and deadly century of human history, and the 21st century is gearing up to be even more deadly and more violent. So despite all of the death and destruction and hate, there are communities of people who have dedicated themselves to Jesus, and despite racial and social differences, um, despite economic differences, despite national differences, there are groups of people who have come together around the person of Jesus Christ and have dedicated themselves to love, to reconciliation, and to hope. That's the crocus flower. We can't, um, we can't prove to our neighbors that it's not still winter, but we can say we've seen the flowers. We know it's coming. This is what faith is. It's looking at all the evidence and choosing to believe because we can see the flowers coming up out of the snow that spring is coming. And Jesus is a crocus flower for our faith because he is the new person, the new kind of person who's obedient to God. And even though we are in a world of death and destruction, we know that there is a power greater than all the death and destruction. And guess what? Every winter turns into spring. It happens. And the crocus flowers are just the evidence that it's happening. And so that's what faith is for us. It is looking at all the evidence, looking at the stories of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, and saying, you know what? Despite all the death and destruction, there is hope. Because people are being transformed. People are freed from addiction. They're healed of their wounds. They're freed from the guilty consciences that they carry around. And we believe in that hope. We have evidence that something better is coming, that spring is on the way. This is what faith is. And so as we walk through this, um, the, the following three weeks, as we close up uh, this series, this is why we called it proof. It's because we're looking at the evidence and we're choosing to believe the evidence. So you, our faith is not one based on um, just blind faith, but it's based on recognizing that there is hope, recognizing the flowers in the midst of all the snow and the destruction. So this is one of those stories that we see. And so this is what we read here in Luke chapter 24, verses 36. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. So this is a pretty uh, normal experience, right? You see somebody who should be dead. That's not normal at all, right? Some of us um, have ghost stories. We've seen people um, in our works or in our homes um, that shouldn't be there, right? This kind of ethereal, ghostly kind of presence. 
Um, and this is what they thought they were experiencing. They thought, surely this person being a ghost, Jesus being a ghost is more believable than him coming back from the dead. Right. And we have some ghost stories that, uh, just explode and they take on a life of their own. Um, and they kind of do, do their own thing. Um, and oftentimes these ghost stories are more believable than like the resurrection. So a good example of this, this isn't a ghost story, but it's a good example of this. Um, I'm like on the fence about Bigfoot. You know what I mean? Like if someone, I I could believe that there's a giant ape wandering around the Pacific Northwest that no one's actually ever seen. Right. I'm like, you know what? It's big enough. I, I could buy that. That's, that's believable to me. And in fact, it's more believable than somebody coming back from the dead because that's never, that never happens. Right. And so the disciples, when confronted with, with meeting Jesus face to face, it was more believable to them to believe that he was a ghost than that he actually came back from the dead. And these ghost stories, um, that we tell each other, um, they kind of take on two different, two different things. One, sometimes they become teaching tools, right? Um, and this might be a good, uh, example like Hansel and Gretel, right? Don't go wandering out in the woods alone, kids, because there might be a witch out there. That's kind of a, a ghost, even if it's not a ghost. That's kind of a ghost story, right? It becomes a teaching tool. Don't go wandering out in the woods because there some, might be something out there. Or they become entertainment, right? They become campfire stories. But the idea of a ghost story is that one person experiences something, and then they, they begin to tell other people about that experience, and maybe other people experience something that's kind of similar to that. And then they begin to tell other people. And then, and then those people tell other people. And then those people tell other people. And then it kind of takes on a life of its own. And it either becomes a fable or becomes entertainment. And if you ask many contemporary scholars, uh, this is kind of how they talk about the New Testament, how they talk about the Gospels. They treat it like it's a giant game of telephone. You know, you, you, know, you guys know telephone. Somebody whispers the big white elephant jumped over the you know, hoop or whatever it is. And then it goes through seven people and the seventh person is like, the hairy white horse jumped through fire or something like that. It's like so different from where it started. That's how modern schol- many modern scholars treat the gospels is that it's just like game of telephone, like a ghost story. Hey, Jesus, he, his body was gone, right? The, the guards, they fell asleep and this and that and, and Jesus' body was gone. Then the next generation of believer was like, hey, Jesus' body was gone and, and the, the disciples began to, to see him. And then the next generation of believers is, hey, his body was gone, but then Jesus began to do X, Y, and, and Z. Um, and so that's how they treat the Gospels. As if over hundreds of years, these stories get passed down and they are so different from what Jesus actually did and said. You know what I'm saying? You, you're kind of familiar with this, this approach. Um, but this is actually, uh, not true. This is actually, isn't true to how the gospel writers talk about, um, what's going on here. So Luke continues and he says this, he said to them, that is Jesus, why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself touch me and see for a ghost does not have flesh and bones that I have. You see, this isn't a ghost story. And the gospel writer is actually very intentional in saying this isn't a ghost story because ghosts don't have flesh and bones. You can't touch a ghost, right? Bigfoot may be out there, but no one's actually ever experienced him. No one's actually ever seen him, touched him, talked to him. 
And in fact, this idea of the disciples uh, interacting with Jesus directly was so important that when Judas, after he betrayed Jesus, he, he hung himself. And then after Jesus was ascended into heaven, they wanted to replace Judas uh, as an apostle. They wanted a new apostle to, to be in Judas's place who could go around and proclaim the message of Jesus. And in Acts, um, they give two qualifications to be an apostle, to be a, a person who proclaims the gospel of Jesus. The first um, qualification is that the person had to have been with Jesus and with the other apostles since the beginning of Jesus's ministry, since John the Baptist. The second qualification is that person had to have been a direct witness to Jesus after he was brought back to life. That was it. Those are the only qualifications that the apostles had for someone to be an apostle, someone to go and proclaim Jesus. They had to have been with Jesus since the beginning And they had to have seen him after he was resurrected. They had to have been a direct eyewitness to Jesus during his career. And we actually see this in in our uh, epistle reading this morning. 1 John 1.1 says, We declare to you what was from the beginning. The beginning of his ministry. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John was an apostle, and he's saying here that as the apostles went around and declared, proclaimed Jesus, this is what they did. They declare to the churches what they themselves were witnesses of. They were eyewitnesses to Jesus. They touched him. They saw him. They looked at him. They hugged him. They kissed him. They knew Jesus. They saw him. They were, direct, they were directly involved in Jesus' life And in his ministry, we proclaim to you what was from the beginning, what we have seen, what we have looked at, what we have touched. These disciples, these apostles were eyewitnesses to Jesus. This is not a ghost story. It's not something that gets passed down from one generation to another. This is an event that happened that people were eyewitnesses to. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the church in Corinth, he says, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time after he was resurrected. 500 people. And then then Paul lists off some of those people. And he says, if you have any questions, just go ask them. They were so confident that what they had experienced was true that Paul tells the church in Corinth, if you have any questions that this actually happened, that Jesus was actually raised from the dead, here's a list of people Oh, and by the way, there's also like 500 more that saw him. They were so sure of it that they had eyewitness account, eyewitness testimony. You guys understand that this, our faith is not blind. We actually have quite a bit of evidence. And the gospels are set up to place these characters, named disciples and named people throughout them in order to show us that people were actually there. And the idea of the gospel's naming people is that they're like, hey, if you have any questions about this, go ask Peter because he experienced this X, Y, and Z. Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured. Peter, James, and John were with Jesus in Gethsemane. They named the disciples specifically, and they name other people specifically, saying, go ask this person if you want to know more about this. This really happened, and there are eyewitnesses to this happening. 
Let me move on. While in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate in their presence. This is classic Jesus, um, just not answering their concerns. And he's just like, hey, I'm hungry. Why don't you give me something to eat? Right? So this guy who's resurrected, go ahead and, hmm, yeah, this fish is good, right? So he's, ghosts don't eat food, right? That's the idea. Ghosts don't eat food. And then he says this. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Um, and what he's referencing here in uh, the Old Testament, the way that Jesus and the disciples and, and Israelites during this time, their Bible was, the, the book order was a little bit different. The first five books are called the Law of Moses. And then there would be a next section of books that were the prophets. And then there was the last section of books that they called the writings. And um, so what Jesus is referencing here, he's saying the first five books, the first section of the Old Testament, the Law. Then the middle section of the Old Testament, the prophets, and then the third section, the writings, begins with the Psalms. That's, that's the first book in the, that third section. So he's saying the whole scriptures, what he's saying. Everything in the scriptures points to me and is fulfilled by me. So everything that was written about me, Jesus says that the scripture was written about him, that the Hebrew Bible, that the Old Testament was written about him. And this is pretty amazing and, and just a, a little sidebar so that you can kind of understand what he's talking about here. Is that from Genesis chapter 3, the first book of the Bible, the third chapter, there's a promise embedded into it. And this is after Adam and Eve um, have sinned. This is after the snake has lied to them, has tempted them into sinning and they um, eat the fruit. And uh, then God kind of lays out what's going to happen because of this sin. And he's talking to... Um, uh, the snake, and he's saying, you know what, snake, I'm going to uh, put enmity, I'm going to put tension, I'm going to put disagreement, and I'm going to put uh, war between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. And there's going to be one offspring that is going to crush your head. There's going to be one individual of, born of the woman who is going to crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of the enemy, crush the head of the Satan. And, and the Satan is going to bite his heel. So from the third chapter of the Old Testament, there's a promise that there's going to be one person that comes into the world and defeats the lies of the enemy and defeats evil, but is also going to be crushed by evil as well. Does that sound like somebody that we know? Right? Yeah. And then as we go through the Old Testament, it's this kind of working out of what this promise is going to be. And you get up to Moses and you think, maybe Moses is the guy. Maybe Moses is the one. And then Moses totally fails and he's not a great character. And you get to the end of the first five books at the end of Deuteronomy. And um, there's this little, little notation at the end of Deuteronomy. So um, a little editorial note um, after the editor took all the, inspired by the Holy Spirit, took the sayings of Moses, the writings of Moses, and kind of collected them all into the first five books. There's a little note at the end where the editor says, and there's never been a prophet like Moses ever since then. Do you hear the, the hope in that? But hopefully there will be someday, right? That's the assumed thing. There's never been a prophet like Moses since then. Well, Moses was pretty terrible. <laughs> so somebody needs to come to, to fix the problem. 
And then, of course, as you go throughout the prophets, the, the prophets are full of references to a future king, one of the son of David, who is going to ascend the throne and is going to rule Israel and the whole cosmos with, with peace. So the prophets are full of that prediction that there's going to be a son of David, one of David's line, who's going to sit on the throne and rule peacefully. And then you get to the writings, and the last book of the writings is the book of Second Chronicles. I know we're getting really deep in here, but just trust me, it's worth, it's worth it. The last book of, of the writings, the third, the third section, is the book of Chronicles. And the last section of Second Chronicles is this story where the Israelites are in exile, their nation is crushed, the temple is destroyed, they're not worshiping God anymore, everything's horrible. But one of their kings, one of the, one of the line of David, is given favor in the Babylonian court and sits at the table with the king of Babylon and eats with him. You see the hope in that? They're in exile, but maybe one day, right, the king has favor. All throughout the Old Testament, there are fingerprints that there's going to be somebody who comes who's going to rescue the world from its violence and from its hatred. Now, um, the scriptures were written over like 1,500 years. The Old Testament was written over like 1,500 years. It's a very old book. And you get to the end of the Old Testament and you think, man, we really need a new kind of human to come and to rule, to show us how to live well. So over 1,500 years, hundreds of writers and editors have all agreed that this is what we need. It's all over the Old Testament. Now, we have a Senate in the United States of 100 people. And you cannot get those 100 people to agree to anything. They can't do anything. They can't agree on any one little issue. And you're telling me that over 1,500 years... An entire nation of people, hundreds of prophets and writers and poets and editors all agree that we need a new kind of human. Are you kidding me? That is so unbelievable. A ghost story is more believable than that, right? Bigfoot is more believable than that. Are you kidding me? So we not only have witnesses that actually saw Jesus themselves, but we also have works of literature in the Old Testament that improb- impossibly all point to the same thing, that we need a new kind of human who will help us succeed as humanity. It is so improbable. And yet here it is. We have it. We have the history of it. It tells us how it was put together right in the book. We have recorded history of how the scriptures were put together. See, here's the deal, guys. That we have a faith that couldn't survive a ghost story. Ghost stories seem more probable to us than somebody coming back from the dead. It seems more probable to us than over, that over 1,500 years, somebody or a group of people would agree that we all need a new kind of human to show us the way. But here we are. We have eyewitness accounts that Jesus lives. And we have stories and we have recorded history of how the Bible was put together. Our faith couldn't survive a ghost story, but it has. Which tells us that maybe what seems impossible is actually very probable and very possible.
So look, guys, I don't know, um, I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you're just here because mom or grandma or your wife or whoever forced you to come here because it's Mother's Day, right? I don't know. I don't know where you're at. Um, but I want to, I want to challenge you that this thing that seems quite impossible, probably actually seems much more possible than we think that it, it, it seems like it's an improbability, but we have evidence. We have crocus flowers showing us that it's true. And even now there are communities of people like us that have experienced Jesus. We know that he's still active in the world because we've been transformed. He's freed us from our guilt. He's freed us from um, our addictions. He's freed us from our hate and our anger. And not every, not you know, in, in every church they don't we don't get this completely right. No one church gets it completely right. But we're here, and we love one another. I've experienced Jesus. I've experienced him. I have a firsthand eyewitness account that Jesus has rescued me from my sin. He's rescued me from my guilt. He's rescued me from my anger and my bitterness and my addiction. He's freed me. I am, I'm an eyewitness to that. And many of you guys are eyewitnesses. And so we are a community of eyewitnesses, um, witnessing to the fact that Jesus is alive and he's still active and he's moving and he's good um, and he loves us dearly. So I just want to challenge you, if you're not there yet, um, take seriously um, the claims that the Gospels make about Jesus. Go ahead and, and pick up a Bible and just read the first four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and you'll find that if you, if you take it seriously, that Jesus is the most compelling, disturbing, totally rad human to ever live. And he's so good. And he's so much different than we are. Um, that I can't have any other, I can't make any other claim and I can't find any other um, outcome than the fact that he did in fact live and he was in fact resurrected and he now lives within me and he can live within you by the Holy Spirit. And this is the gift that God gives us and we can see it and we don't have to have blind faith. There's evidence for it right here in the scriptures and in the world around us. Um, so I want to challenge you to, although I know there's a lot of snow on the ground, um, a lot of war, a lot of violence, um, see the good and see that spring is in fact coming. And we can see it all around us because of these early, these early flowers that are popping up of hope and love and peace and joy. And that's what I invite you to look at. I invite you to buy into it, buy into the spring that it's coming and, uh, and live as if spring is already here um, because it is. And Jesus is present with us and you can know him as well. Oh, 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 oh.